Our text today will be um, Psalm 88. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for the rain, and for your continual grace poured out upon us by way of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, sealed as we are with your Holy Spirit. Pray your blessing uh, to be upon us as we gather to worship you today. May you uh, comfort Mary as they uh, care to her um, falling and her head bump there, Lord, that uh, it would lead to nothing worse. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do, do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I am helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Sends the reading of God's word this morning. Um, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ... I think we can easily fall into um, assuming lightly um, that when we pray, God has to listen to us. After all, that's what he does. That's his job. And we become casual and can easily forget the wonder and the miracle um, that prayer is. That, that God actually stoops down to listen to our words, our cares, our concerns, and our troubles and our trials. But why should he listen to us? Why should God listen to us? There's a parenthesis to that answer that we have been reminded of for the past 12 weeks, and it's a great question to occasionally ask ourselves, why does God or why should he listen to us? Uh, we've seen that, that prayer in the Old Testament 
was nothing less than calling on the name of Yahweh to deliver on his covenantal promises. Amen? We've seen that prayer in the new covenant is calling on God through Christ, who fulfilled all covenantal promises, and now ever lives to make intercession for us. And making intercession for us doesn't mean he's praying for us. He's interceding for us so we can pray. He's representing us before the Father in, in the second Adam. We're in him, therefore we have access um, to God. He intercedes for us. He represents us um, before the Father. This is what it means to ask um, in Jesus' name. Because God will not honor any intercession except Christ's. This is what we've seen over the weeks. So um, our intercessory prayers then become an extension of his work of intercession. So we're now invited to pray these prayers, these psalms in particular, which we've been looking at, um, after him who's gone before us, the one who can truly pray them in their fullest sense. After all, take, for example, Psalm 22. Jesus prayed Psalm 22 in its fullest sense in his darkest hour. Listen to this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, though we are indeed in Christ, still there are seasons when the strongest of believers um, feels as though God doesn't hear their prayers. They feel as though God isn't listening. And thankfully, this psalm reminds us of that. Psalm 88 speaks of a condition of the soul that some Christians know, that some Christians have experienced and or will experience, where all assurance of faith is gone because of trials, because of difficulties. That is that the light of God's countenance no longer shines at present. As a matter of fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, interestingly, in the chapter on assurance, suggests the possibility of the loss of assurance, citing this Psalm 88 as a proof text. Not the loss of salvation, but the assurance thereof. Now, naturally, if you have false belief, if you're not a true believer, you're not going to have assurance of salvation. And if you don't, or if you do, it's false assurance. If a, if a believer remains in unrepentant sin, certainly there may, there may be the feeling of that, that loss of assurance. But also, as the Westminster Confession puts it, and I quote, God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light, end of quote. 
Now, for, for various reasons that are solely up to God, there, there may be a time that he takes away the, the light of his countenance. That is the sense of his presence in our lives. And without this light, we sense that we're walking in darkness and have no light. So, for some mysterious reason, God seems to with, withdraw the warmth of his presence, the light and radiance of his presence in our lives. Um, when that happens, it's, it's good to know that that might take place. And when it is, when it does rather, um, how do we pray? When the light of his presence is withdrawn. And we have to ask ourselves, well, how did the psalmist of Psalm 88 pray? And that's our lesson. That's what we, we want to gain from this. So here's a God, godly believer. He's a, a strong believer who, who doesn't feel that God is hearing him. If you look at the heading in the psalm, it says this is a mascal of Haman, the Ezraite. Mascal it means it's a musical or liturgical term. So this fellow was one who, who developed um, the choir of the Korahites in the temple of God, providing a number of psalms. Choir director. And here he is the victim of un, unanswered prayer. Look at, look at verse 9. Every day I call upon you, I spread out my hands to you. Okay, notice now, listen to what he says, verses 1 and 2. Notice, Lord, God of my salvation. God of my salvation. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Now notice the intensity of the language. He, he cries out. We see, we see that elsewhere. If you read the Psalms, you read it in Psalm 28, 55, 61. And here it's a, it's a request for help. It's a petition that has gone unheard in his mind. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I've been pleading for your help. And it's as though you're not listening. And then he lays out his argument in verses 3 through 12. Notice verse 3. For, what is the for there for? Well, it's because. So he, he's making his argument. He's building his case. That is, in the sense of, of the cause, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. It's connected to verse 2. Please listen to me, Lord, for, because, and then he lists his reasons. He feels as though he's the object of God's wrath. Now, whether, he's rather, whether or not he's the object of God's wrath or not, it's not the issue. The issue is that's how he feels. He feels as though he is the object of God's 
wrath. And then verses three through nine contain um, one main argument as he cries out to God. You know, I've had my fill of miseries. Please listen to me. And then he describes those miseries. He's at the point of death. Something here is life-threatening. We don't know what it is. Some kind of distress, some kind of danger. Perhaps it's a disease, but he's, he's on the edge of death, this man. Verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. That's one of the miseries he's, he describes. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. Verse 4, I'm count, counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. I mean, Haman's life is like a walking death. So his prayer comes out of desperation, this is not out of a structured, you know, quiet time. It's not. He's troubled. Verse 7, your, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Now, he doesn't seem to be conscious of any unrepentant sin here that, that, that may be involved, where, where God turns his shining countenance away. And, you know, when we go through times like this, I think we'll often think first, you know, is there some unrepentant sin in my life? Which is not a bad thing. I'm being chastened by the, by the hand of the Lord. Whether that's the case or not, that's how we begin to think. Has God turned his chastening hand upon me? So here he, he speaks about his condition and he, he talks about waves in, engulfing him, which is a very Hebrew way um, of, of speaking about descent, descending into the, to the depths of the sea because the Jews were not seafaring people. They feared the sea. They, they feared the waves. They feared troubled Seas. They didn't go out on ships. Now, there was a coastline, but most of the time, um, that was occupied by the Philistines. They didn't go out. They did some fishing on the Sea of Galilee, obviously. That was about it. They're terrified of water, so the one metaphor that they employ for their greatest fear throughout the Old Testament is being engulfed by, by waters. Troubled seas, waves, and so on. So this is how he feels. See, not only is God against me, okay? Not only is God against me, but there's nobody beside me. Look at verse eight. He feels utterly alone. You've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. So he says, I'm isolated. I have no friend standing by my side. They actually seek to avoid me. Now, we don't know if he was ceremonially unclean or what. 
but there's no one by his side. And when this kind of agony overtakes us, one vital thing we need is companionship. He has none of it. Verse 9, my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you. Oh, Lord, I spread out my hands to you. So he, he basically says in this section, Lord God, I have one foot in the grave, and you're pushing me in the pit. This is what he's saying. This is where he's at. Notice, this, this psalmist has nothing to do with the foolish theology that says God has nothing to do with this. Did you catch that? This foolish theology that says, you know, you're a good person, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. God wants to help you, but he can't. Or like open theism. After all, God's learning along with us. And if you can just come to terms with the realization that he's not in control of everything, especially when it comes to bad things, you'll gain some relief. He doesn't do that. He knows God is sovereign. Isn't that the theme of Job? Job struggles precisely because he knows God is in absolute control. of his life. Psalmist understands the same thing. So if he knows God is sovereign, why does he go into such detail to describe his misery? Why does he have to tell God this? He knows God is sovereign. Does sovereign God need information? No. He provides provides details in his prayer because he knows God and he wants God to show his compassion. He knows his Lord. He knows, so he's soliciting the compassion of his God. So if God is merciful as the Old Testament continually declares, I'm going to describe my misery to him in detail. It's a good thing to do. So he knows that his misery, he knows that the misery of God's people arouses God's mercies. So he provides his list. This is like your children or your grandchildren. They're running down the sidewalk, they fall, they trip, they stumble, they skin their chin, they skin their elbow, they bust up their knee, and they come crying to you, knowing as they run to you that just the sight of their trauma will arouse your compassion. That's, what they, that's why they do that. That's why if you have a hard, if your dad's a hard guy, he's like, yeah, get over it, get up. He'll look at you, run past you, and run to the mom who will show compassion, (laughs) right? 
This is what the psalmist is doing. He's provoking in his prayer. He's trying to provoke God's compassion because he knows his Lord. You are the God of my salvation. That's how he opens. And that's not childish, but is what? Childlike. Is that not what we've been learning in Mark? God wants us to be childlike. So his, his argument moves from the descriptions of, of misery to inquiry. He asks a series of questions. Verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? These are his questions to God. And it's a clever argument. It's brilliant. Lord, you really need to hear my prayer. Lord, you need to hear me. Here's the argument. I want to praise you, but I can't do that if I'm six feet under. I want to bear witness of you. I want to testify of your justice, your mercy, and your grace. I want to tell people about your righteousness. If I'm dead, no one will ever hear. That's his argument. Answer my prayer so that I can declare your goodness. Side note, that is not to say that the the Psalms are devoid of eschatology, okay? No future hope and all this, because just Psalm 2 alone, we see the eschatological king the Son of God, victorious, Psalm 2. So he's simply saying in the here and now, here are reasons why, God, you should answer my prayer. Here's why, God, you must hear me. Please listen for this reason. My life exists for the sake of praising your name. That's his argument. He knows the chief end of man. He fully realizes the purposes of his life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you ever pray with arguments like that? I do. (laughs) I do. Like, I'll say, like, I'm praying for someone. Lord, he can't believe unless you make him believe. He can't. I'll pray like that. You must. For him to see, you must. Right? That's what he's doing. And if he answers, it will be cause for praise. That's his argument. I love it. To testify of his grace, to testify of his power. So then we see further anguish in verses 13 and 14. But I, O Lord, cry out. Cry out to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? 
Why do you hide your face from me? This is the third time he speaks of crying out. You see it in verse 1, see it in verse 9, and here again in verse 13. Still no relief. But did you notice something about this man? He won't let up. Faith doesn't let up. And then verse 14, it's a repetitive action. This is what it signifies, where he says, Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? The idea is you keep casting my soul away. You keep hiding your face from me. So if we see this, the the igniting factor of his agony more than anything else is the loss of the sense of God's presence in his life. That's the greatest thing for which he's troubled about. at least as he perceives it. Think about Job. Again, God was behind the scenes doing something much greater than Job could even comprehend. It was in the defeating of Satan and to prove to Satan something about Job by God's grace and power. The accuser comes. Take your hand away. The seal of protection you put around him, he'll curse your name to your face. And he didn't. Touch his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. Job didn't know that was going on. So this is what troubles him most. Again, that he's lost this sense of God's presence. And you know what that is? If, If that upsets you, If that upsets you more than anything else, that is a sure sign, a very good sign that you are a child of God. A very good sign. Unbelievers couldn't care less. Nothing dismays the Christian believer more than God seeming, seeming to be absent by way of his presence. It shows up in, in Psalm 30, verse 7. O Lord, you hid your face from me. I was dismayed. I was dismayed. So notice then in verses 15 through 18, continued agony. Afflicted, verse 15, and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am hopeless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. There it is again. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. End of psalm. End of psalm. You know, this isn't a a prayer of of a cheerful, you know, skipping Christian giving a testimony about how God delivered him or her from their trouble, from some difficult situation. 
and they're handing out to you all bumper stickers that says, you know, prayer changes things. You don't see it. You know, the usual story goes, storm clouds gathered, things got bad, they became worse, cried out to God. Eventually, the, the, the skies, they cleared, things are resolved. It was a long time, but now everyone lives happily ever after. Not Psalm 88. There's, there's no note of, of confidence in this psalm. The last word, notice, darkness. Darkness. No relief. Nothing's changed for Haman. So Psalm 88, it descends into the depths. It stays there. So, I mean, does that, we need, does that mean we need to go to another psalm to find hope? No, because there's a little bit of light shining right here, right here. And again, notice, that which upsets Haman the Ezraite the most is not actually all of his trouble. What upsets him the most is that God doesn't seem to be listening. God doesn't seem to be present. But notice, has Haman turned into an embittered cynic? No. That's one bit of light. He has not. He's still walking by faith. He's still crying out to the God of his what? Salvation. So the focus isn't so much on what he says in his agony but rather to whom he is saying it, the God of his salvation. And therein lies the hope for recovery. Because even in darkness, he's still taking his frustrations. He's still throwing his questions out and his doubts out before God. That's the bit of light. There's even more than that, which we'll see in a second. So even though there's no answer to this prayer, in verses 13 to 18, he's still praying. He's still praying. Now, let's admit, this is not God's normal way of dealing with his people. Amen? It's not his normal way. But mysteriously, it is a possible experience for any one of God's people. For, for, for apparently no known, unrepentant type of sin here, God may withdraw his, his shining countenance, if you will, for reasons that, that only he knows. The light of his presence is taken away, allowing you to walk in, in seasons of darkness. So y'all encouraged by this point? <laughs> Why does Jesus use that illustration about the persistent widow at the door of the unjust judge? What's his point? Keep praying. Don't stop. Don't stop. 
Why? Because there's nowhere else to go. Haman knows that. There's nowhere else to go. That's an undisputed sign of genuine faith. Now, I admit this is not my favorite psalm. If you come to our kitchen, you know, we wouldn't have this hanging on a plaque, Psalm 88, in our kitchen. (laughs) We have other scriptures up there, but it's not Psalm 88. But I'm glad it's there. I haven't read it that many times. Our sister said she cried reading it, right? Yeah, look at that. And above all, here's the greatest light. Above all, the God of Psalm 88, the God of this psalm, entered into this darkness. We open with it. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out. The only one who fulfills the Psalms entirely cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that you won't be. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for that dark psalm. We thank you for the light of Christ, your son sent down here on our behalf to to bear darkness we'll never taste. So help us, Lord, in this season um, of life until you bring us home or come back for us that We will pray consistently, even in in dark seasons where there seems to be no movement. Um, Give us the faith to persevere, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.